This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, Denise, and Ben for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 8, Abandon All Artichokes. Today we are joined by Emma Larkin, co-host on the podcast Ludology, host of the Seattle Tabletop Game Design Group, which is now online, and designer of Abandon All Artichokes, published by GameRight, as well as some other games. Today we have asked her to focus mostly on Abandon All Artichokes for the episode. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for saying yes. So just to start, <laughs> so yeah, just to start, um, you're very involved in the gaming community, but how did you initially get into the community itself? So I came into the game industry in a kind of roundabout way. I was actually started off in creative writing, fiction writing, online writing. And through my first Kickstarter, which was for a science fiction novel, I came to know a lot of the people doing Kickstarters and games at the time in New York City, where I lived. There was an organization called New York City Games Forum that I tapped into and eventually became a manager of that group, which was super fun, but just started hanging out with them. A lot of indie video game designers, mostly. There's oh, also cool. a very strong board game design scene in New York City, Gilhova, a lot of other people out there in New York playtesting and designing games. Shout out to New York City. Uh, and so I kind of got into that as well. My boyfriend at the time, now husband, was also into board games and designing a game. So helped to introduce me to some of those people and just... Die, dove head first into it. I'd always loved games, especially video games. Uh, I eventually worked for a small indie video game company and started making my own games. That's so awesome. And I know just from experience, having talked to you in the past and also just introducing you as being a host, it seems like you tend to join things and then take them over. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so it's so true. <laughs> I oh, Yeah, the first time... I reached out to New York City Games Forum and said, like, hey, I want to organize an event that's uh, about different people doing Kickstarters. And I got to know Josh Japonis and some other people doing Kickstarters at the time. Got to know the organizers. And I, I don't know, there's just something so exciting and energizing, I find, about being in front of a group of people and just saying, like, organizing, putting on a show, it's something that... Not that I've always enjoyed, because I used to actually be pretty shy, but that I've stumbled into and realized that uh, is really important and valuable to me. Same thing with the Seattle tabletop game designers. There was a Facebook group when I came to Seattle. No one was really using it. A uh, few people were really getting into board game design at the time, and we all rallied and came together. And one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, I was heading up a local playtest group here in Seattle. Very nice. I love it. Not at all like me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you just have like, you know, the natural uh, charm and skill to do it. Uh, Emma is, is what it really comes down to. It seems like just uh, helping make sure, yeah, things are running smoothly. And uh, so far, yeah, this podcast episode has been running pretty smoothly too. Uh, thanks to you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, of you course. So I'm big into superheroes, Emma. Um, mm. And every 
every superhero ha- uh, superhero has an origin story, right? So for this design that we're talking about today, Abandon All Artichokes, could you talk us through, you know, how the idea first came to light about this one? I think I remember what it is, but for all the, the listeners out there, uh, feel free to go into as much detail as you like. Absolutely. So I always like to talk about Abandon All Artichokes being a name first game design. Uh, I don't know of a lot of other games that are name first design. So it's just fun when I tell people where it started out and kind of baffles them. How do you start from a name? (laughs) Uh, July of 2017, I was doing a lot of daily exercises for attempting to get better at board game design. Lots of weird stuff, sketching, exploration, really feeling out the space. And one of my challenges to myself was to make a list of alliterative game names, uh, like bouncing beavers and uh, crab calligraphy, just uh, brain dump, you know, brainstorm, you know, on the page. They weren't even really game names, right? <laughs> just combinations of funny alliterative words. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I posted the list, a picture of the list to social media People said they would buy Abandon All Artichokes. So right then and there, I was confused because there was no <laughs> game there. It was like, shut up and take my money. It's like, <laughs> I, people like artichokes or hate artichokes. I don't know, something like that. Uh, but it, I, I kind of tabled it for a while. I didn't have any, obviously, mechanics to go with it. It was just a name. But later that year, in October, I issued myself another challenge to prototype a game a day for a week. And I remembered I had this name. I, I don't even know exactly how I came up with the idea of deck builder, but this idea of abandoning made me think of trashing and getting rid of things. So it just kind of naturally melded together, Uh, made the prototype in less than a day, play tested it. It wasn't completely broken. There was something fun to it uh shout out to my husband phil of course for play testing with me and enjoying it we had fun together uh at this time we did have our seattle tabletop play test group going so i i brought it out a few times showed it to some other people uh no shoot i i wrote down my dates but i'm trying to i don't think we actually had the there's other groups in in local seattle there's playtest northwest so i did have some outlets for it uh, i was able to show it to some people and prove to myself that it wasn't just me that was enjoying it uh, oh, that's so good so kept working from there awesome for anyone who hasn't played the game could you go over how the game plays sure a mineral artichokes is a we like to call it a deck wrecker uh, subgenre of a deck builder. So you start off with a deck of 10 cards, 10 artichokes. The artichokes don't do anything on their own. In fact, they actively stop you from winning. The goal of the game is to draw a hand from your deck of no artichokes. How you do that is you have the garden, which is like a market, but everything's free. You harvest other vegetable cards from the garden, put it straight into your hand, do actions, most of which are getting the artichokes out of your deck by trashing or composting them and keep cycling through your deck until you draw that winning hand. Something I always love about playing this game is I have to double check the rule book because I'm used to in a deck builder getting a card and having to put it in the discard versus like directly in my hand. And I always have to double check when I'm teaching someone your game, but I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So much of the 
innovation and design of abandoned artichokes came from me loving deck builders uh, and loving the way that cards, just card games in general, how cards work together in different types of games, but wanting to speed it up and avoid some of the minor frustrations that a lot of more older traditional deck builders have. Uh, like it's in a lot of deck builders, it is important to put those cards into your uh, into your discard because it could be too powerful, right? If you got them right away, a lot of the cards are very powerful, feeds into them being worth different amounts of points and costing different amounts. So it's okay to have powerful cards because they get shuffled in and you don't have access to it right away. So I was very happy with Vanal Artichokes that I was able to do things like that. Like it goes straight into your hand. Uh, things don't have different costs. You can play, there's not action costs. So you can play as many cards on your turn as you are able to play. So uh, not that it, I would say it's better than other deck builders, but it definitely streamlines down so you can get the whole experience in a shorter, tighter game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, I definitely agree. That's why I taught it on a lunch break. (laughs) Yeah, that's always a plus. As far as I know you mentioned, just like you prototyped it very quickly, brought it over, but how much did it really change during playtesting? Oh, just very, very much. I'm a big advocate of playtesting and different designers approach playtesting in different ways. Some designers see it as a way to find an audience that fits the game that they want to make or to prove that their game does work. But for v- for me, it's very much, I, I don't have much ego as a designer. I put it in front of the play testers and I pay very close attention to what works for them and shift the game dramatically to make it work better for the intended audience. And for this game, I really wanted it to be playable by families, by kids, and still be interesting to more experienced gamers. So those are the kinds of people that I was testing the game with. And especially with the less experienced gamers, I was looking at the kinds of things that they did and just letting the game do those things. So taking the card into the hand was actually something my playtesters did on accident when I was first playtesting the game. So people didn't know how a deck builder worked, right? They were just taken into their hand. So like, okay, what if I just let them do that, you know? Uh, And other things, the compost, the fact that the trash is the compost was something that was suggested by a play tester, forever thankful for that. Uh, Harvesting cards from the garden with no cost for things, because when I first designed the game, you would have to discard an artichoke or another vegetable as a cost. So the act of discarding was what you had to pay, basically, in order to be able to take cards And it was just slowing the game down. So seeing people just start to take things and play them, uh, I observed that and saw how much quicker and smoother the game went with that and incorporated it into the mechanics. Emma, I have the same philosophy when it comes to design. I feel like it's a super collaborative kind of experience, right? Like, and and how validating is it for playtesters especially, um, and even designers as playtesters, when you make a suggestion perhaps and then it sticks into the game? I think, you know, you following the uh, player's innate or um, sort of inherent behaviors is such a great way to, yeah, have them enjoy the fun faster. Uh, when it comes to 
maybe finding a home for this game. As you said, uh, it kind of came to you in 2017. So could you walk us through kind of the journey about finally uh, getting it to game right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I I just laugh because I'm looking, I look back on the journey. I just, <laughs> just shaking my head at myself, at my audacity and just, because I, I, I prototyped the game late October 2017. Uh, and what happened, I think November, early December 2017 was the first PAX Unplugged. And I think I had already planned to go to PAX Unplugged, although it all came together very last moment. Uh, but I'm like, well, I'm going to bring this there and play test it and pitch it. Why not? You know, just throw it out there. I had gotten access to the Cardboard Edison publisher list that had contact emails on it. And I have a pretty strong marketing background as well. So I knew pretty easily how to put all the pieces together and just started sending out emails to people who would be at PAX Unplugged. And mm -hmm. surprisingly, people responded positively to it. I I think that proof proof in the pudding of the name very early on mm -hmm. wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just one person. Because I, I would say it to him, people would kind of laugh at it, you know, so that even just the name, I think, has been a pretty big hook yeah. throughout the, the design process. Uh, I also had some GIFs that I put in my email from my video game marketing background. It's just certain little touches that I think really helped to elevate the game. And I was able to set up some meetings at that first PAX Unplugged, including with game right. Although that wasn't even really a meeting. I think I just dropped off my cell sheet and did the handshake like eye to eye. Yo, what's oh, up? Yeah. <laughs> this is my face. This is me, you know? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. And I think I ended up sending my prototype. I didn't even demo it in person, but when I did eventually send it, they looked at it. They liked what was happening there. It did already have fruits and vegetables with faces, which <laughs> is in the game right wheelhouse, you know, Sushi Go. Yeah, Sushi Go. <laughs> with places. That wasn't so much... Uh, I've loved Game Right for a long time. I love Sushi Go. I love that they make accessible games that are interesting for gamers, but great for families as well. But I wasn't like, haha, I'm going to go for Game Right. I'm going to put these food with faces in there because I think that would be good for them. I just think it's adorable, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is just cute and dorky and adorable and, and fun, but... All those things came together to pique their interest, and we started talking and going back and forth after that. Super wow. cool. And really quick, I think also worth noting, you know, 2017, you're sending emails with GIFs with GIFs in them. Nobody's doing that, right? Like, so I think you're already ahead of the curve. Your your background mm -hmm. is sort of outside of game design has definitely kind of helped uh, push you forward even more, which is fantastic. And I just want to like, you know, let other listeners know, hey, you know, um, sometimes, well, I'm sure, yeah, you could find like an outside skill of the industry to kind of fuse and sort of, uh, you know, own that and, and make it work for you in the hobby board game industry. So that's just a really cool uh, example of, you know, that being, being the case and, and being true to life for you. Yeah, uh, I will say too, <laughs> through coincidence or luck. I mean, all artichokes is just very gifable or jiffable. It's still so hard for me to say that. Jiffable, <laughs> I don't know if that's the word. Because the, it's basically, you know, draw five cards. That's It's a video snip gif, right? It's like mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, five, all 
or no artichokes, thumbs up. You know, that's the three second loop of the GIF. And you can like, oh, that's you winning. You know, it does have a moment in there that is the aha moment, which, you know, not all board games have. It's so it's part of understanding the medium and the best way to present it. What was it like working with GameRite, especially as far as the development and then designing the product? Because, I mean, the end product is very unique and kind of set towards their look of the tin box with a really nice insert that I want to talk about a little bit more later. But how did that all work out for you? I, I just feel so lucky that it was an incredibly smooth and collaborative process uh, always just the right amount of back and forth and pushing. And especially Jason from GameRite is just such an amazing collaborator. Uh, basically what would happen is I would send a prototype or we would meet up at a convention, test it out. Uh, they have their play testers that they test it with. They would give me some feedback. I would do a bunch of play testing and we just kept going back and forth like that we we actually didn't sign a contract very early on. So all of this development work on both sides was kind of pro bono, I guess, oh, you know. Wow. But for me, the game kept getting better. You know, if they had started pushing it in a direction that I wasn't comfortable with, there was no obligation at that point. And for them too, you know, they could, especially for me as a newer designer, like, is this person going to keep working? Are they going to take our advice as the company seriously? Are we going to be able to come to uh, an agreement of what the best presentation of this product is? And I think that's really important for a working relationship. Uh, I know some designers who sign contracts earlier on in the process, and you do have security that way. I do understand people not necessarily wanting to do a lot of work where the publisher might just say, nope, uh, we're not interested in it. But you kind of get a sense of what they want and make sure that it aligns what you want for this thing, because you're putting this out. Uh, for me as a designer, I spend a lot of time and effort talking about the things I make I want everything that I make to be something that five, 10 years later, I can break out and still be proud of, you know? So it's very important for me that the design aligns with my vision. So having a collaborative partner like that, it just felt really great, really smooth. Not that it wasn't tough, you know, there was definitely times in the process where I wasn't sure I would be able to do it, you know, that the things would come together in a way that the game is really a solid, complete product that played well in the right amount of time and had the right amount of components. Like there's definitely challenges in there, but overall it was just a really solid in work environment that worked really well for me as a designer. I'm honestly really impressed by the fact that you were a newer designer and you held to your guns versus a lot of people that are very much willing to sell it on their first design. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes I wonder if that'll mostly be me or not. But I think that's great that you got to work and find the game out of the game that was best for you. Yeah. The most important thing for me as I, I will admit I'm a gamer. I, I play lots of different types of games. I play a lot of Magic the Gathering in particular, and it's very important for me 
from a logic perspective to know what's happening in the game. Um, my friend Javion especially will talk, kind of call me out for this and say, you can't play a game until you know everything that's going on and that you're making the right decisions. I'm like, I know I'm trying to get better at that, <laughs> but I just, I want the game to tell me what I'm supposed to do and then reward me for doing that thing. So it's very important to me that it wasn't just like, oh, what happens when this card comes up and this card is doing this thing and there's an answer to that. So when I talk about, for me, the importance of a game that I can be proud of, it's something where all those questions are answered. It's not just kind of like, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter because it does matter to someone, to those min-maxers out there. You know, it's like, where is this card during this phase of the game? Is it in your discard? Is it in the trash? You know, I think for people like me, just feeling comfortable that there are answers for those mechanical questions is really important. I know it's a little obsessive, but <laughs> it's important to me. I think that's great. Uh, I'm curious about how long the process took from inspiration all the way to publication. And was it expected? Was it surprising the amount of time that it took? I will say when I was in the weeds in the middle of it, it definitely felt like it was taking a while to come together. But looking back on it now, it was incredibly fast. So July 2017, name October 2017, first prototype uh, publication, approximately March 2020. So uh, less than three years, right? From first idea to publication, which is actually incredibly fast in the board game design world. So we did spend a couple of years-ish, most of that time was going back and forth, tweaking design. But after I signed the contract in March of 2019, less than a year to finish product, which is amazingly fast. Wow, that is like, yeah, <laughs> it, it all happened so fast, especially because I signed the contract in March, 2019, we chatted a little bit and then it was fall of 2019 where all of a sudden it was rule book and art and lots of back and forth. And then they sent it out and then they had the copies. So that all came together very quickly, which was nice. That's insane. Did you have any say in what the final product of they're kind of notable, like with Sushi Go, they had the tin container, but also the insert I love is recycled materials, which yeah. just fits even more so into the theme. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't know about insight or say exactly. Jason sent everything over to me. So the layout for the fact there was going to be a tin, all the art, sending things over and some of the design and stuff I, I gave feedback on for the, the graphic design of the cards, uh, obviously the wording of the cards. Uh, I was able to give feedback on the wording of the rule book, which is very important to me as, as someone who's written manuals and software documentation before just having the words right is something I'm very passionate about, but they just, <laughs> again, I feel kind of lucky because I know people have mixed feelings about tins, but I love it so much. I just have a <laughs> copies throughout my house that I look at and I smile. They just sit up and the artichoke faces you with the little artichoke face on it. And it's just creepy at all. (laughs) Just watching you. Just watching me with a kind of consternation on its face. Uh, I just, uh, that's 
something that's really great working with uh, an established company that's been doing this for years and really knows, uh, has a lot of experience in different types of things. Just, I was just blown away with how they uh, um, made everything come together, uh, especially with the the art that was done by Bonnie Pang. And I, I love that it really captured the the cuteness, but not cutesiness. I think it's a really, really tough balance to strike. And, and I love that the cards with the, the coloring and the textures that they used on the art is adorable, but it also has... Uh, kind of a grown-upness to it, so it really strikes that balance between of appeal across audiences. So, what's your sort of favorite and least favorite experience in the journey uh, of your design? It's a great question. I would say favorite experiences definitely the the typical highs. You know, them asking for the first prototype signing the contract, holding the first copy of the game in my hands, especially at PAX East last year, right before everything shut down, I was able to like have it and see people play it. So I did actually get that brief experience, which was really great. And, and also just in play tests, uh, especially with seeing kids play the game. I think it was the first PAX Unplugged when I was first showing it off, this family with these two young girls, they must've been like six or seven years old gamer girls and just sitting there and playing it and saying things like, I assume play progresses to the left. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, uh, and just seeing them connect with a game that's honestly a little complex mechanically. The deck building mechanic is definitely not something which I've learned very intensely not everyone gets it not everyone is familiar with it and it can be a, a little tough to get over that first hump oh so, yeah yeah it seeing people sometimes. connect with it is definitely a highlight uh, i would say the toughest times are just like the the dark night of the soul and the hero's journey the doldrums those moments when i said it so many times my playtest group will make fun of me like even uh even early 2018, right? A few months in development. This is the final version of the game. I've nailed it. I've definitely solved all the problems with this prototype. It's going to blow you away. This is this is going to be it. You know, as like the the SpongeBob meme, like one eternity later, <laughs> say it again. This is the final version. This is definitely I've solved oh, no. all the problems with it. And then it's worse, right? Like you bring it to your group who's tested it before and it's just broken. And you thought that you had actually fixed the things and you just made the game unplayable somehow and you can't you don't even the way that a game works you have to get in front of people and have those experiences you you can't always see through the play experience to see that it is broken that's why play testing is so important so the development cycle there was a lot of play tests a lot of versions uh trying to remember i think i have it posted 142 different Ooh. iterations of cards wow. that ended up becoming uh, the cards that are in the game now. So there was a lot of different combinations. I went down to like six types of cards. I went up to 22 or something cards in the game. There's a lot of different things that I tested and it, it can get tough. I think we all as designers know that 
testing the same game over and over again, especially with the same group, you can get play test fatigue, you got to find new people for it, you can get fatigue in yourself as a designer. So getting through that process is valuable. And that's how you get the game to you have the aha moments, right? You have the insights and you do figure it out. But when you see the game falling apart in front of you during a play test, it can be really tough. That is so true. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering around that fatigue question, what gets you back in? What keeps you persisting? Because I I feel like I hear 142 versions and my my mind get goes dizzy. And yet there's real sort of persistence and resilience. And I'm just curious, like what were the things that motivated you um, to keep going? I think stubbornness, <laughs> mostly just that problem solving thing, right? This like this game's not going to beat beat me. You you sit down, you look at all the things that you did, you look at how it fell apart, what you thought that you were going to fix. You know, usually take a little break from it. You might not in the play test. You might take some notes, but a lot of it is especially with a game like this where you can kind of piece pick apart all the different pieces and it is small and tight enough that you know most of the levers that you're working with. So this card, power, okay, discard two cards and then draw a card. What didn't work with that? Well, they ran out of cards or they were going through their deck too quickly or every time someone took this card, they ended up winning the game. So this thing is overpowered. Uh, it's nice that it's a type of game where you can kind of see the through line through a lot of those. So you can't work it out just in your head, or I can't at least, but seeing it in someone's hands, it's pretty quick to say, this is what's broken about it. And you might not know the answer to it, but you know the problem that you have to solve and you have some pieces of things that you can throw at it. And then sometimes you just come back to the drawing board and say like, okay, I need to brainstorm 30 new different things that cards can do and what are the areas I can work with. I can work with the deck, I can work with the discard, with someone's hand, with someone else's hand, with the garden, with the compost. I have all these different zones, right? And how can I do different combinations of those in different interesting ways? So there's kind of once the framework of the game was established and I knew that that was fun, there was mostly a known space to operate within. And it was just really a matter of brute forcing it at that point. That's great. That is definitely epic and true. And like, it's also kind of <laughs> nice <laughs> at that point, like you said, once you have the base framework, Emma, you're just kind of experimenting and exploring stuff. Right. So I'm sure, you know, like, well, I'm, I'm sure air quotes I'm doing over, you know, a podcast, but uh, <laughs> like, you know, by version 136, you're probably done, but you're just kind of fine tuning and tweaking everything to get to version 142 is, is my assumption. And we all know what happens when you assume, but um, yeah. that's just really nice. And I think too, you know, there's also the potential for expansions, right? And so, you know, some of the old scrapped ideas might be worth revisiting at some point in the future. Um 
not to preach too much, but like for me as a designer, I try to experiment. Yeah. And just try everything out, you know, throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. And then everything that doesn't like, don't just totally, uh, dispose of it or compost it, but, you know, hold on to it for maybe later. And, uh, there might be an opportunity where it arises to either use it for the same, uh, game or maybe for an entirely new design. Oh yeah, absolutely. Nothing is ever lost. Uh, I do absolutely though have to shout out, I, I had a publisher interested in this, right? I had a few people actually who were very interested in the game throughout the process. So I always had that to lean back on. You know, no matter how tough it is, these people are interested. They they believe in it. Mm-hmm. Everyone in my playtest group, there were people in the playtest group where this was their favorite prototype that they were playing and they wanted to buy the game. You know, I would go to conventions and playtest the game there. Like I mentioned with the the kids just lighting up and being so excited about this game. So support is a big thing. You know, if you're getting feedback on a regular basis that you're on the right path, it makes such a big difference to have that. If you're operating in a vacuum and no one is, the game's not really gelling with people and no one is really super interested in it, honestly, you know, you got to get to that point. That's really what helps you carry it and see it through. You know, it's not just for me proving that I can do this. It's for all these other people who want to see this become something. A hundred percent. And now it is something, right? Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) it it came out March 2020, which isn't really the best time for anything to happen. Um, But, you know, since it's released, do you know about like how well uh, it's it's succeeding, I guess? Like, are people still reaching out to you and letting you know, oh my gosh, we love Abandon All Artichokes and we just, you know, like want to sing you praises and that kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah, the game's doing great. I have, <laughs> as part of my marketing background, definitely interested in data and statistics. So most days go up there on BGG or go over to Amazon, see how it's ranking on the lists of games, uh, see how it's doing on the ladders, still uh, holding or going up most days. So one of the really nice things about working with GameRight is they really focus on evergreen games Mm -hmm. and they're still selling games that they've been selling for years and years. So I'm incredibly lucky that to have them as my publisher, because there's definitely publisher whose model are the hits model, right? You know, we're going to sell it, we're going to go big, and then we're not really going to talk about it after that. So it's definitely a game that's going to continue to exist. You know, when we can go to shows again, I'll still have that opportunity to see people playing it and see people buying it. So uh, there is that. I have the, I get my statements, you know, selling thousands and thousands of copies of the game, just every every statement, more and more copies, which is amazing. Um, the It's already been printed it, by other publishers in different countries, and there's wow. more versions on the way that I can't talk about yet, but I'm super excited about. Um, the There was a, a German version was actually just announced, and I'm really excited about that because uh, I think that... The, especially the family market there is a little more experienced in, in board games. So I'm really hoping that it's going to be a hit there and enjoyable. And some some year, you know, go to Essen again and see it there, I think would be super fun. So game's doing great, and I can't wait to see it continue to do so. So glad to hear it. 
So just with how, I mean, you're so much in the community for game design, you brought up your playtest group. I kind of have to wonder, how did you, kind of off topic, but how did you get invited onto the Ludology podcast? I'd love to hear that backstory while I got you. Yeah. Uh, gosh, it's such a, such a trip. Uh, and this is one of the things we, we talked about. We talk about it on social media all the time, Facebook and on Twitter. It's just so important to be part of the community, to talk to people, networking, you know, especially it's a little tougher in this digital age, but it's still something you can do. Maintaining relationships and friendships, really, I think that's what it comes down to. Like, I've always, always, again, mentioned, like, after I got over being a very shy nerd and kind of started putting myself out there, uh, always looked at networking in an industry as just making friends, you know, getting to know people, having a conversation at a con, being excited and passionate about what people are working on. So what this feeds back to is Gil Hova was one of the first people who ever play tested a game of mine. It was very different than most of the games that were tested in that group. He was amazingly supportive, uh, just an all around amazing person who has done so much for this community. I kept in touch with him. Even after leaving New York city, I worked at his booth at Gen Con showing off games one year. So just building up these relationships and then just out of nowhere on Facebook Messenger one day, you know, to Will Gill, he's like, hey, what are you up to? You want to be a host of Ludology? <laughs> and just like floored, right? Because this has been a podcast that I had listened to. And especially for the, the pedigree of it, you know, just this very uh, academic, thinky game podcast for people who've been gaming for years and years and years and designing games for years and years. And that definitely wasn't me. And I have a much more, uh, less academic background, kind of more, you know, in the board game stores, selling the board games, like seeing it new, newer person to all the stuff that's going on. I have a very different philosophy from the people who have been on hosts of Ludology before. So it was very unexpected, but it was just really great to, to be asked to participate in that. And you didn't even take a second to say yes, did you? <laughs> well, I had to sit down first. Like, so <laughs> what, what? You know, it takes a moment to process, to understand that this is uh, happening. And a big commitment too, you know, is this, it's not just, is this something I want to do or is this something I can do, but is this something that will me doing this work for the shape of what this thing is, you know, carrying on a legacy really. And Am I going to hold on to that and present it in the same way for the expectations that people have built up as listeners? Uh, and truth be told, I didn't. You know, I made a lot of changes and definitely pushed it in a different direction, which I think is what Jeff really wanted, right? When Jeff left, he he said that on the podcast, he'd really explored what he wanted to explore. And he was excited to pass it on to people who wanted to explore different things. And we've been able to do that, which is really exciting to me. That is so awesome. And I just have to say, Gil did the same thing to me, slid into my DMs, and I ended up working on trade shows and I have not been able to escape since. And I'm currently on an advisory board for one of them because of him. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Gotta love it. Yeah, yeah. So if you could offer one piece of advice to designers, what would it be? 
one piece of advice. Only one piece of advice. I have so many. I would say. How about one for every artichoke that you've eaten today? <laughs> oh, shoot. I got to eat some artichokes real, real fast. <laughs> I would say the most important thing for a designer is to really investigate and understand yourself and what it is you want out of designing games. Designing games can be whatever it is you want it to be. It can be making a game for your friends or family that just really gels with you and is the funnest thing that you've ever played. Designing a game can be making a game that's played by thousands of people. Uh, but you really got to know what that is because they're very different activities kind of outside of the game design that you need to participate in, depending on what that means to you. I, I see a lot of people who they just want to make games and they don't want to get involved in the networking aspect of it, or they're doing it, it's taking a lot of time, or they're not putting in the effort to kind of really research and understand and you know try just lots and lots of different things. It's a creative field and it's I don't want to say competitive exactly because it's not like we're fighting each other, but there's a lot of designers out there. There's, you know, the market is the same size, but there's more and more designers every year. So if what you want is to not, not even be successful, because like, what does success mean to you? If you want to make a game that sells thousands of copies, like that's very much, you know, it's easier if you make a smaller game. It's easier if you make a a lighter game than like a, a three hour game. It's easier if you're networking and connecting with people. It's easier if you have an understanding of product. There's all these things other than game design that go into that. So I think really being honest with yourself about what it is that's important to you and then being willing to do the stuff that will get you to that point. And then still knowing that the, it does involve uh, luck and you know, it's, it's, it can take a while to get there if that's what you want and just being okay with that. And for anyone who wants it enough, it's worth the wait. And I hope that's very true for you, Emma. It seems to be yeah. that way. Uh huh. Not that you had to wait that long, but we get you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any, or are there any other new projects that you're allowed to maybe discuss or just like ideas uh, on the back burner, any other alliterative game titles that you might have uh, on the list that you're looking to maybe peek into uh, for 2021? Nothing that I have announced yet. I mm -hmm. have some personal projects that I've been slowly chipping away at, uh, hoping to have another published game this year sure. as yet to be seen. But I'm also looking on self-publishing some things and kind of working on, I have a game and then we died, cooperative storytelling, where you play as ghosts, trying to figure out how you died so you can pass on to the other side. I've got the rights back to that game. So I'm excited to play around with it a little bit more and explore the space and see what I can do with it creatively, potentially probably launch it myself. So that's an exciting journey to, to go on, actually become a board game publisher. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if all else fails, you could go back to uh, bouncy beavers and just have like the Larkin alphabet <laughs> collection and just go through oh ABC. Yeah. Was it um, uh, calligraphy <laughs> crabs? Oh, I, that one I would definitely play in a heartbeat in an artichoke heartbeat. See, I said that there needs to be a game called Catapults, where you shoot cats at each other. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes, please. I would buy it. I have a thing for cat games, actually. It's kind of it's kind of a problem. I have a growing collection, and they're all great, 
put a cat in it and I will probably buy it. A crazy That's hilarious. My cat, cat is currently movie. on my lap as we're talking. So, And as far as finding you, is there any email, social media, anything that you want to plug? So if people want to reach out and maybe ask about design, ask about ludology, or just like where to play test some games with you that you want to plug? Absolutely. I am active on social media. I'm at Emma Larkins pretty much everywhere. The Seattle top the Seattle Tabletop Game Designers, we meet online. Now we have a playtest group every Wednesday that anyone in the world can join. That's on Facebook if you want more information about that. I have a website, emmalarkins.com. You can find information there. Uh, I like to chat with people and see what people are up to. Awesome. Well, then I'm going to sign us out. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 8, Abandoned All Artichokes. Thanks again, Emma, for joining us. And Yeah. And as far as the hosts go, you can find me, Danielle, on, gosh, everything. So Facebook, Creative, or DMR Creative Group, on Twitter at Creative DMR, and then Instagram at Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y. And then you can find Ben at Facebook as Ben Moy and a little Facebook page that I got going on. Your friend, Ben Moy, designs board games. And of course, we have Denise. Yeah, you can find me, Denise, on Twitter as Year23 and on Instagram as KellyDN. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. And Emma, definitely looking forward to all the future projects and good luck on potentially becoming a publisher. I'm sure you're going to be very busy. Thanks. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.